the curmudgeon rock report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for the rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Arturo Andrade, dispatch from Christopher O'Connor. How's it going there in South Korea? I'm doing great. Yeah. I want to do a shout out to two authors, and they're related to the episode we're going to do today. Um, The first author, he's a music journalist by the name of Greg Prado, and I just finished reading a book by his, published in 2009, called Grunge is Dead. Uh, the Oral History of Seattle Rock Music. Really, really good. Just finished it. And I just started reading another book. Another book about, it's, it's also an oral history of Seattle rock music. It's by Mark Yarm. It's called um, Everybody Loves, Loves Our Town, A History of Grunge. Also an oral history. And it's I just started reading it, but it's a little more in-depth than Greg Prado's book, which is really good. But this one, the, the one that I just started reading, is really in-depth. It's longer, and it interview he interviews more people. So uh, if you're really interested in really good oral histories of the 1990s rock revolution, I recommend these two books. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, the Parallel Universe, uh, which is much better than the actual universe. Uh, Here, we, Christopher O'Connor and Arturo Andrade of the Comerogen Rock Report, we get to program the radio. We get to book the shows for the venue. We run Clear Channel, now Live Nation. Uh, We uh, are the tastemakers. And so here... uh, we get to tell you uh, what is hot and what is awesome. Uh, that is not Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, Ugh, you know, thank God. And uh, it's you know, and it comes on our newspapers. Uh, we don't care about Britney Spears' conservatorship uh, and apparent uh, uh, ongoing mental illness. Uh, we care about great bands and great music that uh, should uh, have a larger profile than it does. Arturo, uh, what are you uh, exploring in the parallel universe this week? Oh man, right now, this album is probably my choice so far for album of the year. He's a hip hop artist by the name of Genesis Owusu. And it's his debut album called Smiling With No Teeth. Now this dude, he was born in Ghana, but he was raised in Canberra, Australia after his family moved there when he was two years old. Now, this album is generally and nominally hip-hop, 
but it is an intoxicatingly, I love that adjective, intoxicatingly original and fresh blend of hip hop that incorporates classic 1970s soul R&B funk and electro-tinged indie rock. No, it's not like The Weeknd because Owusu doesn't delve into retro 80s synth pop pastiche and he's a much better rapper and lyricist and just overall better musician. <laughs> so think Prince meets Damon Alburn's Gorillas meets Outkast and all put through a slam banging hip hop grinder. Yeah, don't, uh, don't forget Bambada. Yeah, a little bit of Africa Bambada in here as well. Yep. Uh, standout tracks include Whipcracker. This is a, a, an anti-racism track. It's also a single that starts out with an intense 4-4 beat and kind of a rap flow kind of reminiscent of the late DMX. And then midway through, the song unpredictably evolves into like sweaty disco funk. <laughs> uh, another great song is Gold Chains, which is another of the singles from the album. And it kind of takes TV on the radio's inventive synth rock and injects it with hip-hop juice, installing a badass bass groove and soulful, gospel-ish background vocals. So I highly recommend this album. It is, as like I said, as of now, it's my choice for number one album of the year. It begins, you would think it's from uh, Bambada's uh, 1982 catalog. You know, it hits, yeah. uh, has that kind of Arthur Baker uh, uh, hit. Yeah. Uh, or feel uh, to it, but then yeah, he goes he goes all over the place. Uh, Gold Chains has this uh, wonderful uh, kind, almost like RZA ish, if that's a uh, descriptor, uh, yeah. bass thing going on, and, and real texture uh, to it. So yeah, it's he's pretty exciting, but it uh, it shows you uh, how hard you have to work to find the good hip hop these days. Yep, because uh, it's an an Aussie. Uh, with a uh, and a, his African uh, given name uh, that you know is basically doing it better and uh, way better uh, yeah. than they're they're doing it here in America. And yeah. like I said, there's a couple of folks, you know, Vince Staples and uh, a couple of guys in Detroit like Danny Brown. And there's a few people that are still doing some compelling stuff. But yeah, yeah, uh, it doesn't get much more compelling uh, than this these days. So good call, dude. Okay, so. I'm uh, in the parallel universe again, and uh, turns out that there is one band that might actually live in the parallel universe <laughs> to the point where I'm beginning to think that we should replace the intro music to this segment with excerpts from their songs. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about uh, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Uh, if that for sounds sec- for the second time this year. <laughs> yes. Uh, if that sounds familiar, uh, we uh, covered uh, an album of theirs, what, about five, six episodes ago. Yeah. Uh, at that time, uh, King Gizzard is one of these bands. We've said uh, on this podcast several times that there's something to be said for the gatekeeper function yep. that has been lost in this era of music distribution. Quality control. It, <laughs> yes, uh, because it, it saves us from the shit. But gate. King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, they actually are, at the very least, they consistently put out interesting records. Uh, 
records that don't sound like they were masturbating in a cup. Uh, you know, they're not uh, Bob Pollard and uh, they're not uh, some John Darnielle. <laughs> yeah. Or John Darnielle. Uh, sorry, John. Uh, or any bands like that, that they actually can pivot uh, between uh, styles and actually get really good records out. Of them. Uh, let me take you through this sequence. So a couple years back, they released this wonderful thrash and uh, thrash metal inspired record uh, called infest the rat's nest, which is a concept record about unlivable earth where we all have to move to planet B. Uh, I mean, it's such a bad planet. It doesn't even have a real name. I guess that makes earth planet a, uh, and so, but it's thrash metal. It's totally Metallica, uh, inspired it has the the crunch it has the solos it has the structures uh and it was one of the best records of that year earlier this year they switched back to what they've been calling their series of microtonal records uh with lw uh, which preceded the album kg get it uh they're they they think they're clever sometimes <laughs> and LW was this mix of, like it said, microtonal, Middle Eastern-inspired uh, songs uh, with uh, differing tempos and differing styles. But generally speaking, a very good math re uh, rock record uh, that uh, brought up the themes of ecology and, and spirituality and uh, some of the, the go-tos that are common with uh, King Gizzard and, and Lizard Wizard. Now, here we are, like, what is it, like three or four months later? And King Gizzard, uh, as is their want, has released yet another record, which they recorded uh, during COVID lockdown uh, in Australia, which did have a COVID lockdown. This one is called Butterfly 3000. Uh, true to its title, this is another concept record. And uh, yes, it is in some ways about metamorphosis and floating free into the better uh, space, whether it's dreams whether it's heaven, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, on, on drugs or whatever you would want to call it. So there you have it. It's, it's freedom from the darkness and you're living in the wonderland. Well, Stu McKenzie, uh, you could call it indulgent. I think it's very, very, very smart. Uh, not quite brilliant, but it's very, very smart. It says, okay, well, I'm doing this album about, you know, floating, into dreams and into heaven and breaking free uh, from the internal chains. That sounds like an electro pop record or that, that should get an electro pop accompaniment. And so now here we have synth pop and not synth rock, synth pop, uh, you know, that uh, gets uh, these treatments. It gets falsetto from Stu McKenzie. It gets uh, harmonies uh, ostensibly of, of McKenzie. Uh, you know, Arturo made a comment to me earlier in the week that maybe this could have been a Stu McKenzie solo project, which, you know, is true because, look, you could say that it's indulgent, but I really do like uh, uh, what they've done here. Uh, the uh, some of the, the lyrics, uh, I mean, this is really just sort of indicative of the theme of the record when it uh, when Stu sings. It gets better, uh, gets crazy when you can literally be out of your skin floating above who you have been, it gets better. So again, this is all meant to encapsulate the wonder of the, uh, the out-of-body uh, uh, experience. I'll keep my response very brief. This album fucking sucks. 
I think it's one of the worst in Gizzard's entire catalog. Um, at the very least, they're worst since that album from 2016. That was the one continual loop record, which I never was a fan of. But uh, to me, it's just way too many awkward vocal phrasings, way too many dissonant chord progressions, all wrapped up in a package of just cheesy, phony craft work. <laughs> is the way is the way I, I I reacted to this. I heard it. I, I gave this album two listens. It sucked the first time, and it got worse the second time I heard it. No. And like I always said, this is a testament to what I've always said. Um, there's such a thing as being overly prolific, and there's such and so, and there's something to be said for quality control. And like I told you before, Chris, like yeah, th- this should have been a Stu McKenzie solo record. Uh, to put the King Gizzard name on this kind of dilutes the King Gizzard brand a little bit, in my opinion. I think it's cool that, you know, that a band experiments and tries new things and new sounds, but just because they do it doesn't mean it's always good. Uh, we are now leaving uh, the universe, and let us get into the meat of this episode, which we have titled The Dregs of Nirvana. Arturo, what, what, what is this all about? All right, well... Several weeks ago, we did an episode called Death by Nirvana, in which you and I, Chris, did a survey of the carnage of bands whose careers were either drastically altered forever or just destroyed, thankfully, by the alt-rock revolution spearheaded by Nirvana. Well, to follow that up, on this episode, we will scour the rock landscape from the mid-1990s all the way through the decade of the 2000s, otherwise known as the noughties, in order to torture ourselves and painfully reminisce on all the terrible bands that came in the wake of grunge and expedited the demise of rock radio, at least in the U.S., with their derivative drivel. It's important to note that it wasn't just Nirvana that inspired this nonstop shower of shit, however. Uh, corny, watered-down versions of Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains as well were uh, 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 actually significant. Some of these bands spent significant amounts of record label money doing bastardized, corny, watered-down versions of Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains as well. It's also important to note that this wasn't just a phenomenon of fuckery that lasted a few years. The unending American appetite for phony grunge and phony alternative rock lasted at least 10 years, probably a little more, which means it's a forgettable era that lasted longer than the real grunge era itself. Way longer. Sad, Sad, sad state of affairs. Yeah. It seems that for more than a decade, the mainstream of American rock music fans liked their quote-unquote rock and roll honesty draped either in macho posturing, whiny self-pity, or overwrought Christian imagery. Yeah, we're looking at you, Creed. <laughs> we're about to take a masochistic walk down memory lane and pick out the worst of wannabe grunge wannabe alternative rock and overall the worst of commercial of commercial rock radio from the mid 1990s onward yum <laughs> yeah uh 
Well, uh, well said. Um, uh, yum, yum is in, uh, yeah, we like the taste of uh, vomit. Uh, <laughs> let me, uh, let me just give you uh, a few of my own thoughts on this. Uh, Nirvana was so good and so important that they inspired uh, us to dedicate two episodes to really bad bands on both sides of their time and place in rock history. Uh, <laughs> Cobain, Novoselic, and Grohl's time and place in history really is a line of demarcation. Uh, they exposed the limitations and the unforgivable sins of a lot of popular bands that preceded them. And then they inspired a bunch of bands that tried to capture the magic of Nirvana and their grunge peers and were shockingly and unforgivably embraced by quote unquote alternative rock fans, basically for their own limitations and sins. Look, things were so bad there for a while that we don't even have room on our list for this episode to include third eye blind or collective soul. Oh fuck. Yeah. They were really bad. Yeah. <laughs> but I well, we, we need to have some fairness here and give you a reminder that, uh, not all of the Seattle laden love was bad. Uh, here's a roll call of some of the bands of that era that became popular, but also basically got it right. Uh, three that come to mind are local H garbage, which you know shouldn't be a surprise since Butch Vig was their band leader, and then Everclear. Uh, you may agree with me on, uh, disagree with me on that last one, but Father of Mine is a genuine classic uh, hard rock song. Love it. Uh, and then also, there's a few uh, great bands and singles out there that uh, may never have hit the public's consciousness or radar if not for Nirvana. Uh, that roll call includes Weezer, uh, Fountains of Wayne, Hum, uh, who's uh, one of their leaders just died, uh, the Toadies, uh, L7, and then uh, two singles that immediately came to mind for me, Semisonic's Closing Time and mm. Joan Osborne's One of Us. Mm. Uh, so you may not have gotten any of that uh, from that era and afterwards if it was not for uh, Nirvana. And then it's also worth mentioning that it helped Mike Ness <laughs> uh, achieve some mainstream success uh, with Social Distortion, uh, given okay. I, I Was Wrong, which was a 1997 hit, uh, was one of the best ra rock radio singles of the decade. And uh, Bruce Springsteen was a fan. So anyway, those are, those are my uh, thoughts leading into this. The 1990s were the fourth golden age of rock. I'm stealing that term from Arturo because I wholeheartedly agree. It's a perfect way to describe the era. Why do we make that argument? Find out soon. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will be basing an entire series of episodes on the topic, from Lollapalooza, the good kind of shoegazing, and grunge, all the way through to EDM, Mook Rock, and Napster, we'll cover the spectrum of a beautiful, incredible span of time where everything changed, at first for the better, and ultimately perhaps for the much worse. What defined the 1990s for you? Let us know at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. All right. So now we're going to do the countdown of the 10, actually a little bit more than 10 because we cheated, uh, <laughs> of, of, yeah. of the worst fake, phony, bullshit, alternative grunge bands from the mid-1990s onward that polluted rock radio with their shittiness. And number 10 is one of our three multi-band groupings. I like to call it the one-hit division of suck the one-hit division of suck ass wannabe grunge. Chris, take it away. Okay. Yep. And uh this was a uh considerable uh division. 
uh, <laughs> honestly, uh, basically starting in 1996, uh, the apiothis or the, the, the center of this was 96, 97 and, and, and 98. So, so uh, indicative of the main sin uh, committed by these artists as a collective, they ran with the drama and the sarcasm and the surface angst, not the actual evident pain or the wit or the textured nuanced worldviews that targeted ambiguity and the dangers of losing your soul or your family or the love of your life acutely. Uh, that was the accomplishment of the best of, I guess, quote unquote, Seattle bands and some of the other uh, bands uh, that immediately preceded everybody. Now, the curmudgeon uh, rock report grand grunge facsimile award goes to Seven Mary Three for its inescapably reverent and dumb hit, Cumbersome. Oh. Now, I will admit that I liked this song when I was a junior in college in 1995, 96, whenever this piece of crap Well, it, it does lend itself to frat house stupidity. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways it does. And and yes, uh, I love my friend Stu Morans, even though I don't talk to him that much, but he's the one that turned me on to this. Uh, and, and yes, uh, you know, when you're 20 and you're inept with, uh, with women, some of these lyrics might, uh, might resonate and, you know, the opening line, you know, she calls me Goliath and I wear the David mask. I guess the stones are coming too fast for her now. Uh, yeah. One, it's like, dude, read the Bible yeah. <laughs> before you're going to do that. And then two, the guy must've practiced his growl. Uh, and maybe practiced it in the mirror so he could get the right face to get the right voice. Yeah. Because, you know, he sounds awesome and he sounds like he has real conviction. Uh, at the time to me, you know, he seemed like he could be a poor man's Eddie Vedder. Uh, nope. He was just a studio savvy phony, uh, which brings up the neatest trick of this song. Uh, he, this guy sings about being a creepy phony trying to win over a girl. Uh, and the song is by a creepy phony band trying to win over a still grunge drunk audience which it did. And this was a huge uh, alternative rock charts hit. I think it was number one for like a month or something. And it was unavoidable. Uh, it was as, well, depending on where you got your music from, it was as unavoidable as the Alanis Morissette stuff there for about a month or two uh, back in that era. So here's an amusing punchline to all this. Now, uh, when I subjected myself to that shit on Spotify, uh, the streaming service segued immediately into Harvey Danger's flagpole setup. Which is a good song. Mm, I disagree. I mean, I it like is, it. look, it's a much better song than Cumbersome, but it's <laughs> also unfair, unbearably phony, you know, grunge ripoff. Uh, those, look, those guys are from Seattle, by the way. Yes, they are. And Sean Nelson is a uh, pretty prolific music writer. And I met him 20 years ago. Seemed like a good dude. But I just didn't like the song because it was just, it was so dumb and so derivative and, uh, so slick and look you know when i listen to it i feel like my iq points dip into the negative digits <laughs> and i'm like this okay so listen to the chorus you know i'm not sick but i'm not well and i'm so hot because i'm in hell well so am i as a listener shut the fuck up <laughs> so otherwise here's a roll call of other bands that belong in this category the verve pipe you know handsome depressed looking guy spitting out over the top sad lyrics uh tonic which was yes. a very good band technically, but was boring. Yeah. Uh, then you had Sponge uh, in a world of human wreckage. 
Yep, that's where they generated all this horse shit from. Yeah. Uh, Our Lady Peace. Uh, they don't merit comment. Uh, Deep Blue Something. Yeah, whatever. Breakfast at it's Tiffany's. Stalked. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they desecrated the grave of Truman Capote by naming that song "Graphics to Tiffany's." Uh, Sean Mullins, uh, he be mulling over how much he sucks. Uh, Eve Six, ick. Mm-hmm. Uh, four non bonds, even though they were a little bit earlier than this. Look, Linda Perry, the leader of that band, went on to write and produce hits for Christina Aguilar and Pink. So that gives you all you need to know there. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, my my personal. Well, this one makes me smile. Primitive radio gods. Mm-hmm. Yes. Aw- awful band. Dude looked the part, but he had a terrible real name. Christopher yeah. O'Connor. <laughs> so we go f- from these one hit wonders to a band that unfortunately had a little bit higher profile than that, even though they really, really, really shouldn't have. What do you yeah. got? Uh, OK, well, he- he- here's what this band is. Hey guys, let's replicate Allison Chains's Sap and Jar Flies EPs, extend it to an entire album, and let's push our handsome lead singer up front to take up as much camera space as possible for the videos. Oh yeah, and let's make sure he's shirtless all the time so it evokes the brooding sexiness of Chris Cornell. That's essentially the rationale behind Days of the New. <laughs> yeah, pretty pr- pretty much. Yeah, and 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 you're you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. A band that basically flared up briefly in the late 1990s before egomania, drugs and overall awful music derailed their brief career. All right, let's give a little a brief history of this crappy band. The four members of this band formed in 1994 in Charlestown, Indiana, when they were still in high school. They were a supposed groove metal band originally called Dead Reckoning before they decided to do their acoustic grunge shtick and they changed their name. They only played a few shows in the Louisville area in 1996. That that town in Indiana is very close to Kentucky. Right. uh, Before they were discovered by Scott Litt, the well-known producer who worked with R.E.M. and Nirvana, and I don't know why he liked these guys, but he did. <laughs> and I they guess, were I guess signed. I guess Travis was a charismatic chap. Yeah. And they were signed to uh, Outpost Records, an indie label that had major label distribution. Their self-titled debut album came out in 1997, and lo and behold, they had some hits. Touch, Peel, and Stand, their most well-known song, was number one on the modern rock chart for 17 fucking weeks. Other songs, The Downtown and Shelf in the Room, peaked at number one and number three, respectively, in the same chart. And the album went platinum, which, for you kiddies out there, means it sold one million copies. (laughs) The problem, the album fucking sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 yes, it did. Uh, I mean, look, the single, if you heard it, like, maybe three or four times. Okay. Pretty good. You know, at least they had some talent when you have to hear it five or six times a day. Look, yeah. I was, you know, back then I was in my car a quarter of the day yeah. uh, on, you know, getting back and forth to newspaper assignments. But every fucking time I was in the goddamn car, that, t- that song was on. And so it's just like, yeah. go it was, away. It, it, yeah. it sucked and it got overplayed. And in, in addition to the music being a shameless ripoff of, 
acoustic Alice in Chains. And seriously, you can imagine these guys watching Alice in Chains' unplugged performance on MTV in 96 and taking notes. You can yeah. just visualize it. <laughs> yes, yes, you can. The songs are just one monotonous, somber, self-pitying mope fest after another. Melodies are scarce and hooks are even scarcer. The lesson that all these crap bands trying to ape Alice in Chains don't learn is that the secret to Alice in Chains' greatness was not their dark and heavy sound. It was the fact that Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley were really, really good songwriters. Absolutely. And they had great sense for melody and dynamics within the music that kept it from getting tedious. I'm going to quote Robert Christgau, and this is a great one. In his review of Days of the New, quote, as marketing, it's pure genius. It looks like alt country and it has no electric guitars, even yet it is actually America's answer to Silverchair. And hey, it's sincere. 17-year-old Heartland frontman Travis Meeks really is depressed, really has immersed in Soundgarden really does think it's deep to hook your single to the all-purpose trope of abuse. This is why grown-ups need Hanson. This is yes. also why this is also why they need Radish. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> I love Chris Gow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Chris Gow comes up with some good lines, although my favorite line about Chris Gow is uh, uh, the dude from Soul Coughing it says that Robert Chris Gow gets paid to write about his mail. Uh, which uh, which is meant as an insult, but Hey, that sounds like a good fucking job to me. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, so yeah, I, uh, the only thing I have to add is that um, of all the, you know, we call this the dregs of Nirvana, but you could do a a much longer, uh, broader uh, episode and list about the dregs of Alice in Chains because they, uh, there were every other, band and I can't even remember half their names and I try to, you know, take them out of my mind, but you listen <laughs> to active rock these days and every other band is as a Alice in Chains ripoff, which was yeah. funny because then a few years back, I mean, I'm driving on the road and uh, a song comes on and I immediately knew within five seconds that that was the real Alice in Chains. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with, with a new lead singer. Uh, and so, because look, uh, you can try to ape it. You can try to model it. You can try to run with the formula, but you just Jerry Cantrell. You, you, if it's that good and that original, you're not going to hit it. Where do you think we're going next, Arturo? Oh, uh, where we're going next? A band that maybe even worse than Days of the New. <laughs> yeah, basically they're worse than everyone. Uh, let's. I'm keeping this very very short. Yes, uh, because please. this is the, this is the kind of band that leads itself to uh, poetry from the writer's soul. Uh, <laughs> I, I I say that tongue in cheek, but it's actually kind of true. Uh, Puddle of Mud, oh, which God. which as you know uh, came oh two oh three. Uh, well, you know they they're basically a two hit wonder. Uh, and, and by the way, by the way, this is one of two bands we have Fred Durst to thank for. Yeah, basically, you know, Fred Durst, the Magic A&R man that uh, uh, thrust uh, this band and another one on us. So Puddle of Mud, Kansas City band. So, okay, so here's my poem. Puddle of horse shit. Puddle of dog shit. 
puddle of Kansas City born rat shit, led by a guy named Wes. <laughs> His lyric? Everything's so blurry, and everyone's so fake, and everyone's empty, and everyone is so messed up. So are you, motherfucker. <laughs> Enough said. Yeah. This is a, a, a terrible lyricist, terrible songwriter. Good God. Yeah, but but hey, good looking guy who could wear his uh his back his cap backwards and and look cool while he was doing that. And then of course they're more famous for the song She Fucking Hates Me, or I think that I don't know if the fucking is in the title, but that's what it's known for. Uh I remember taking a ride to a Rolling Stones concert with the general counsel of the newspaper I was working for the time. While he was smoking a joint, he was in his mid-50s wearing cowboy boots, and the guy was singing uh, lovely, lustily, and gleefully along to She She Hates Me. Uh, So that tells you all you need to know. Now we we travel uh, from Puddle of Mud, we go back a decade to a band that could, could actually be worse than Puddle of Mud. I think they kind of all. Well, no, you know what? No, they're, they're both equally bad. <laughs> well, they're more offensive. Candlebox, yeah. Candlebox is more offensive. Yeah. We're making a list of shitty fake grunge bands, but ironically enough, Candlebox actually hails from Seattle. And uh, we're contemporaries. And we're contemporaries. They formed in 1990. They slogged around the clubs and bars. Candlebox, by the way, officially they're number seven on the list, just to let you know. Uh, they slogged around the clubs and bars of the Seattle music scene for a couple of years until they were spotted and inexplicably liked by some AR guy from Maverick Records. Now, Maverick, for those who don't know, was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers that was founded by none other than Madonna. So Candlebox, believe it or not, was the beginning of Maverick Records' hot streak of releases that included Alanis Morissette, The Deftones, and The Prodigy. So Candlebox started this thing <laughs> for, for Madonna. <laughs> yeah, uh, go, go figure. I know. Their self-titled debut was released in July of 1993, but it took a while for the album to catch on. By the end of the year and throughout 94, the Warner Brothers publicity machine made sure it got annoyingly ubiquitous on rock radio with three songs, You, Far Behind, and Cover Me, hitting the top 10 of the modern rock chart with Far Behind, especially peaking at number 18 in the Billboard pop chart. Now, that's quite a lot of success for a band that produced the blandest, most unmemorable most watered-down version of shit grunge to date. Same sounding is an adjective or another adjective I would like to use to describe the band's music. All Candlebox songs, at least on their quote-unquote classic debut album, (laughs) start off with a lilting, softly-picked arpeggio, then build up to plodding mid-tempo heaviness with singer Kevin Martin belting out his simplistic lyrics with an overwrought wannabe grunge howl that resembles Eddie Vedder only if Vedder's balls were caught in a bear trap. Uh, (laughs) I've given a lot of adjectives, but if I had to choose one to describe Candlebox's music is this. Generic. Funk Turkey, who has become a star on YouTube, 
Uh, yes, folks. His YouTube name is Funk Turkey. And he's great. Uh, and he's great. He's become he's become famous, kind of famous, for putting several songs by a particular artist slash band into a quote unquote bot. Really, it's a computer program. Then having the system's algorithm create a generic, typical song of that band. The results have often been hilarious with uh, ACDC, Metallica, Led Zeppelin, and many others getting the Funk Turkey treatment. Yeah. Folks, go on YouTube and check out Funk Turkey. It's yeah, the, the ACDC one is wonderful. Yeah, that, that actually perfect. Now, back to Candlebox. If you get every song by every grunge band imaginable, put them into Funk Turkey system, ask it to create a generic grunge sound, and I swear to God, the machine will come up with something that sounds like Candlebox. You know, generic, same sounding, unmemorable, and unfortunately lacking in the humor that other Funk Turkey productions have. Now, Candlebox released their follow-up, Lucy, in 1995 to much less success than their debut. Their third album, Happy Pills, came out in 1998 and sold even less than the second album. The band thankfully disbanded in 2000. (laughs) Since 2008, though, Martin, Kevin Martin, the lead singer, has led various incarnations of the band with a revolving door lineup featuring just him as the constant member. Since 08, they've put out three albums that did practically nothing that have done practically nothing up until the pandemic hit the Kevin Martin band, which is pretty much what Candlebox is now. They continue to tour, but does anyone even care? And is there such a thing as Candlebox fans? Like really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I, I know. I, I don't have much more to add to that. Although, uh, <laughs> I, all these years, I really thought I knew the definition of the word classic. Yeah. Uh, so I'm now just utterly confused. And so what follows from classic here? Shallowness, uh, vapid, uh, yeah. half in, half out tunes or tunefulness <laughs> or tunelessness, vomit. <laughs> Don't know. So let us all move right. on. Speak, speaking of the next band, that of all the bands, why did they choose this one? Chris, take it away. Number okay. six. So uh, here's your reintroduction to Silverchair. Now, uh, let's go through this uh, step uh, by step and bullet point by bullet point. Uh, first, uh, they were an Aussie trio of guys, of kids, all in their mid-teens. The lead singer, Daniel Johns, was a Kurt Cobain lookalike with an eating disorder. Now, for real, the guy actually did have an eating yeah. disorder, which he disclosed in the late 90s, which you know, was unfortunately a very 1990s teenage-like affliction. They actually named an album Frog Stomp. Settle down, Beavis. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. They also did have the talent to ape Pearl Jam sound and also Nirvana's soft, loud arrangement tendencies. Which, you know, sounds wonderful in theory. You put it on record and it's like, what the? Yeah. I mean, seriously, yeah. like listen to the songs, uh, Israel's Son, and try not to roll your eyes so far back into your head that you get a clear view of your cerebral cortex. <laughs> now, uh, here's a lyric from that song. Oh, I, God. Want, I want you to know that I want you dead. 
Now, gee, did they ever hear of a Nirvana tune called I Hate Myself and Want to Die? Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing how inspired uh, you can you can be. Uh, now, the kid, you know, obviously he didn't kill himself. He, he had the anorexia. He didn't kill himself. Uh, but two kids that did kill themselves uh, somewhere uh, sued uh, the band uh, for apparently pulling in Ozzy Judas Priest uh, with this song. Uh, can't remember exactly what happened to that, but be that as it may, at least, hey, if you're going to be notorious, you might as well be notorious in multiple ways. So uh, Silverchair, yeah, they had their moment. Uh, they also strangely got critical applause. Uh, that Unbelievable. Uh, Unbelievable that they got, they actually, yeah. actually that first album, like, hey, they're teenagers. Come on, give them a break. It's like, fuck off. No, no, no. It wasn't even apologism. It wasn't even that kind of stuff. It wasn't glad handing. It actually was praise. Uh, there were, you know, MTV put them in the same boat as Green Day as like the next big thing. Uh, they got uh, good press and spin and positive reviews. And, you know, folks, uh, you know, like the couple of uh, singles uh, from Frog Stomp. And, you know, and they, they did sell some records. Uh, they got themselves on some big tours. They had a six or seven year streak consistently as a, as a big opening act for big bands. And uh, they made it through until 2011, which uh, is pretty funny because uh, when Daniel Johns put out the statement, he referred to it as an indefinite hibernation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Does, you know, does a bear shit in the woods? Sure. Uh, does silver share? Uh, Silver chair, uh, you know, shed in a in a hibernation uh, uh, tuck. Absolutely, uh, they have not reemerged. And uh, as of last year, John said he had no interest in reforming the band because it wasn't fun anymore. Um, well, you know, I mean, look, it was a band that he formed when he was twelve. Yeah, you know, now he's in his thirties. Life goes on. However, Silver Chair does not. Uh, it is still there. Uh, uh, occasionally. They've actually kind of faded from the uh, regular rotation of the rock band of the rock stations here uh, in the U.S. They're still big, I guess, in Australia at least as a as a classic rock quote unquote staple. But yeah, I, I never got it. They they these guys were uh, uh, as synthetic leather as it gets. Uh, yeah, no so. shit. Look like Nirvana, sound like Pearl Jam. Let's make some money. On this episode, we took a gigantic Melvin's Riff-sized dump 
on all the inexcusably crappy, phony, fake grunge and alternative rock bands that littered the rock landscape for more than a decade. For this next episode, and now we Chris come and I will to take the a number five tack. entry that we lovingly call our the Massachusetts Division of Suckass Wannabe Grunge. As stained, the hail 20. from Springfield, That's Massachusetts, right. the 10, and Godsmack come from Lawrence, Massachusetts. Yep, and, and this, this one pains me because and my father's family is from Springfield, Massachusetts. And I lived there for two years. Right. And these two bands are classified as new metal. And good taste you know, prevailed. The, the subgenre that Korn practically invented selling out with their debut album back in 1994. But if you sit down and listen to their music, they really are not new metal at all. Barnett, Stained basically take a wizard, huge slab of a dose of Allison Chains, email us put a little tool in there, at and come up with a totally nondescript, on Twitter more boring, at, at far less inspired hybrid that lacks the immediacy, the sophistication, and the songwriting skills of the latter two bands. Godsmack literally named themselves after an Allison Chain song, <laughs> and frontman Sully Erna has been credit to him, honest about how they've musically, how much they've musically taken from Allison Chains. Uh, so yeah, I mean, basically, Godsmack are Allison Chains without the intelligence and with more lunk-headed aggression. I'll get into I'll get into this more, but uh, Sully's got a little bit more intelligence than uh, you might give him credit for at first. Oh, I'm sure he's a smart guy, but it doesn't come well, across in the music. Well, but even some of the music's not that bad uh, in in terms of its intelligence. Is it great music? Yeah. No, but there's a few smart things going on. But go ahead. Well, I guess that lunk-headed aggression is what keeps them new metal. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> the go. maddeningly perplexing thing about these two bands is how they've been able to maintain mass popularity in the U.S. for the most part, with their albums consistently charting in the Billboard Top 10, stained until their self-imposed hiatus in 2013, and Godsmack's most recent album from three years ago charting as high, at number, as, as, high as number eight. So let's start with Stained very briefly. They started in 1995 as a covers band, covering mostly, surprise, surprise, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Tool. <laughs> they self-released their debut album in late 96, and they got their big break a year later opening for Limp Biscuit when Biscuit were touring for their first album. Supposedly, Fred Durst was so impressed with them that he got them signed to Flip Records, an indie label specializing in atrocious heavy metal bands, then had a distrib had distribution deals with several major labels. Yes, again, we have Fred Durst to thank for unleashing another shitty band onto the world. Uh, their second album, Dysfunction, came out in 1999 and had moderate chart success, both album-wise and singles-wise. They did a lot of touring with some really shitty big-name new metal bands, and they grew their fan base. They hit pay dirt in 2001, though, with their third album, Break the Cycle, which spawned the international smash hit ballads, It's Been a While, and The Acoustic Outside. Now, I'll admit, It's Been a While may be their only good song. 
even I will admit to, to liking it a little bit. However, yeah. in the end, it basically sounds like an Allison Chains outtake from Dirt. Yeah. With the chord progressions, the vocal delivery, the self-pitying lyrics, all being grunge tropes that by 2001 were already cliche. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cliche on top of cliche on top of cliche by then. Yeah. You know, afterward, they never had a song that was nearly as big of a hit as it's been a while. But over time, they unbelievably became a classic AOR band. Two more albums, 2003's 14 Shades of Grey and 2005's Chapter 5, inexplicably went to number one with their hot streak ending in 08, with The Illusion of Progress debuting at number three. Their last self-titled and pre-hiatus album went as high as number eight. I said inexplicably, but I kind of guess it is explicable. I guess there really is an unlimited appetite in America for big, beefy guys with tattoos bellowing in baritone voices about their feelings and their vulnerability. This will never end because they all want to be Pete Steele. Yeah, pretty much. Up next, and much more briefly, Godsmack. Like Stained, they were formed in 1995, but under the name The Scam by Sullyerna. They changed their name to Godsmack after recording a demo. For the next two years, they were pretty much a staple of the Boston club scene, and they, like Stained, self-recorded their first album. We have Boston radio station WAAF to thank for bringing exposure to Godsmack with the song Keep Away, getting heavy rotation until it went to number one on the station's chart. This led to a major label deal with Universal Republic Records and the release of their self-titled debut album in 1998, and starting from this point onward, a seemingly permanent place in the playlists of the, what I call, miasmic shower of shit that is corporate-slash-commercial rock radio in America. Like Stained, the Naughties were very kind to Godsmack, as they also had a streak of three consecutive albums hitting number one on the Billboard album charts, Faceless in 03, The Oracle in 06, and Roman numeral 4 in 2010. Since their second album, Awake, in 2000, Every single Godsmack album has produced at least one song that has gone to number one on the modern rock charts. Their most recent album, When Legends Arise, from three years ago, had not one, not two, not three, but fucking four songs go to number one on yeah. the modern rock charts. Yeah. How bad does modern rock radio have to be in America? That derivative, <laughs> yeah. same-sounding, macho butt rock like Godsmack is so ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. How bad? Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. No, I, I, I know. I mean, look, I mean, I guess uh, my, I'll keep my comments brief on, on here. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess you could give some damning with faint praise at least to Godsmack in the sense that the song Voodoo, uh, was inspired by the movie The Serpent and the Rainbow, which is uh, an underappreciated, uh, lost, uh, weird-ass uh, voodoo uh, uh, horror film. Uh, and, you know, so he started as a drummer, and he was a club guy, and he, he seems like he has bona fides. But, yeah, bad bands that, like you said, you know, 
aped Alice in Chains and other bands and still gets, you know, teary-eyed uh, ballads sung by, you know, ostensibly handsome dudes, although Sully's kind of an ugly fuck, but he has the tattoos anyway. Uh, but yeah, there's not much I can say about Stained other than, uh, yes, they're the second band on this list unleashed on the world by Fred Durst. And uh, out the version of Outside with Fred Durst singing the song with Aaron Lewis live was the one that became the huge hit and broke Stained. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so it's like guilty by association. Uh, you know, look, you know, Durst, been very successful you know he's, he's done some directing and all of that and you know give it up for for him as an entrepreneur but yeah as a as a play uh that has still uh, emanated over what's left of rock yet uh durst is durst is is pretty evil so that's all i have to say <laughs> speaking of evil this next band number four on our list god do they suck they're, they're, well, Chris, take it away. <laughs> yeah, let's just put it this way. Uh, this band is so puzzlingly uh, insipid and uh, dull, but unusually ridiculously successful. We had to knock them down a floor for this discussion. Uh, so at number four comes three doors down. Yep. Uh, and uh, unlike a lot of this, the bands on this record... Uh, or on this list, Three Doors Down was really successful for a really long time, uh, starting in 2000. And they haven't released a record since 2016, but they were huge. Uh, multi-platinum records, uh, headlining shows. They do their own festival every year. Uh, you know, not bad for some conservatives from Mississippi. Uh Okay, fine. They have the distinction of being one of those bands that has the, the cool thing where the drummer is also the vocalist uh, until they get big and then he has to be out front. A uh, guy named Brad Arnold. Uh, God bless him for uh, making so much money off so many bad songs. Uh, and not only that, but he may be the most karaoke of all alternative rock uh, post uh, Nirvana, these dregs singers that like, he's just like, uh, you could just see him at a karaoke bar, like singing, like Skinnerd and uh, singing Nirvana and singing Sabbath in that sort of, hey, I'm drunk and I'm having fun. And dude, isn't this great uh, kind of thing. And so yeah. there's, there's nothing uh, pleasing about his voice. If it wasn't for that, Kryptonite, which I think to this day is probably still their biggest hit or their most notable song, might not be a bad song. It has has a decent little galloping uh, rhythm to it. I guess it was unique enough for them to be put on the radio. And then again, they just took off like a rocket. They did all these albums for you know, almost 16, 17 years. They all sold. Uh, they were still headlining. Uh, they've done all this, you know, sort of corporate rock stuff. And they're the most corporate of corporate rock. It's just yeah. really and not only that, because, you know, remember, these guys are all from Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, their most recent claim to fame was that they played as part of the inaugural celebration concert for Donald Trump. God, in fuck, in, fuck in, these guys. Yeah, basically. Uh, and so, and, you know, it, you know, keep in mind that, you know, maybe there's a correlation between the fact that they played that show and that they haven't done an album since. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, who, I mean, who, who knows? 
Uh, although Wikipedia, which, you know, again, is a surface uh, resource, but a good one, uh, tells me that they uh, in, embarked on the Rock and Roll Express Tour in 2018, along with Collective Soul and Opening Act Soul Asylum. So essentially, they've now been unmoored from time and put in the uh, the eternal bin of uh, money-making phoniness. <laughs> well, you know? I mean... Anyway, this leads us now to our number three band on this list. And these guys are a little older than three doors down. So here's the premise. Four British guys who had been unsuccessfully kicking around the London music scene for years. They hear Nirvana's Nevermind and find out about this little thing from Seattle called grunge. They say, hey. Let's just shamelessly rip that off and push our tall, handsome, former soccer player, lead singer to the forefront. We'll be millionaires. Now, does that sound too contrived and corny to be successful? Well, yes, it was. And the band wasn't really successful anywhere. Except for North America. (laughs) If there's one lesson we're learning in this episode... It's to never underestimate Canadians and Americans' taste for third-rate, derivative, unoriginal, copycat grunge. Yes, this band, Bush, (laughs) were originally called Future Primitive, and according to an unnamed British former record label executive, quote, they weren't what they are today. They were a little more like the commercial side of NXS. Yes, in the beginning, they were an even poppier version of NXS. Oh boy. All right. Anyway, in 1993, after their name changed to Bush and obviously a radical musical makeover, they got signed to Disney's Hollywood Records. And in early 94, they recorded the songs that would make up their debut album, 16 Stone. Apparently, the folks at Hollywood Records had some good taste. They deemed the album unsuitable for release and instead released the band from their contract. Interscope, however, took a chance and quickly signed them up and released the album in late 1994. K-Rock, the legendary rock station in Los Angeles, is known for breaking many bands into mainstream success. Bush were no exception as their first single, Everything Zen, was the first of a streak of five songs that charted in the top ten of the modern rock charts. Two of those songs, Come Down and Glycerine, went as far as the top 30 of the Billboard pop charts. So while grunge pioneers like Mudhoney and Tad were getting fucked over by their major labels, grunge light imposters like Bush were cashing in and 16 Stone went six times platinum. Here's the thing about 16 Stone. When you listen to the album, it's crystal clear that the five songs that became the big singles were always planned to be the singles. Yep. Those songs are very well produced, Obviously. Very, very polished, perfectly mixed for maximum radio impact. The rest of the songs on the album not only aren't anywhere near as good or quote unquote good, but they aren't as well produced and have almost a demo like sound quality to them. And 
you know, after that album, as if they were to, as if they wanted to signal, hey, we really want to be the next Nirvana. They hired Steve Albini, who produced Nirvana's In Utero, mm-hmm. to produce their follow-up razor blade suitcase. Predictably, it was basically 16 Stone Part 2 with the same third-rate, watered-down, phony grunge as its successor. Naturally, <laughs> the album debuted at number one in the only two countries that gave a shit about Bush. And they had a couple of more top 10 rock radio hits with the awful Swallowed and the terrible Greedy Fly. Oh, Swallowed is just, ugh, ugh. Yeah. Oh, it makes me want to shit. Yeah. This was the end of Bush as a commercial rock force. They put out the, at the time, obligatory dalliance with Electronica, The Science of Things in 1999, and the super-produced, super-pro-tooled-up Golden State in 2001. Neither album did anything, and Bush broke up in 2002. They reunited in 2010, continued to tour, and have since released four albums that no one with good taste really gives a shit about. Chris? Yeah, Yeah, I I can't do much better than that. Look, Gavin Rossdale lost his woman to Blake Shelton, uh, which I don't don't know. I mean, there's a lot of jokes that can be made uh, from that. But yeah, look, uh, 16 Stone, uh, you know, if you're not connecting it to its predecessors and forefathers and you're listening to it in a vacuum, it's a pretty good record. You know, I mean, Gavin Rossdale's a decent singer, uh, great production job, like you said. Um, uh, what's his face there? Nigel uh, was a really, you know, proficient guitarist. Uh, and I, you know, I always like Come Down and I always like Machine Head. Um, but, meh, yeah, you're right. But take it out of its vacuum. And yet, no, and I even said it at the time when I first listened to it, when uh, Now and Zen hit the radio, I was like, yeah, okay, these guys are British, but there's no fucking way that they'd ever be in America if it wasn't for grunge. I mean, they wouldn't have a career, you know, so yeah. they, they clearly and calculatedly, um, and, you know, and they obviously didn't hide it. Uh, they weren't even coy about it. Um, yeah, they, they rode that wave. Um, hey, why not? You know, more power to them. I mean, Gavin Rossdale and, you know, a lot of those Bush songs, those five songs basically are still all on the radio. Uh, some more than others. I think Machine Head's probably the most uh, uh, enduring one. But yeah, and then like you said, then they said, well, you know, uh, if we went for it kind of, sort of, cleverly, like let's really ape the shit out of it and let's bring in Steve Albini. Uh, okay, so fine, you you got the Albini song, but man, what? like I said, it's just, it's like somebody took puke to hang up wallpaper, they went away, <laughs> you know? And so, right. which, which is more than we can say for, uh, I guess, well, like these other bands we're about to talk about, they went away, but I, they're uh, quote unquote. It took, uh, a lot longer to go, it took a lot longer to go away. Yeah. And, and their quote unquote <laughs> legacy is probably more profound. Um, so. Ugh. Yeah. Number two. And again, we're cheating again. We're putting multiple bands here. Chris. Talk to us about the Florida division of suck-ass lightweight grunge. Why, why, why yes. Uh, you know, uh, there's a reason that Florida has become uh, so meme-worthy, uh, not only because of its delectably uh, insane redneckness and just, you know, uh, dumb, dumb shit that comes out of that involving, like, you know, at, you know at 
people getting eaten by alligators and, uh, you know, getting caught with, uh, you know, meth in their teeth, like literally like trying to smuggle meth in their teeth uh, kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. And so this kind of comes out of it. You know, it's dumb. It's uh, synthetic. It's ridiculous. And it's just like uh, he, the, the, it turns out that sometimes not having a clue is the best thing that can ever happen to you. Uh, yeah, so the Florida division, we're talking about Creed and Matchbox 20. Uh, I'll quickly knock out Matchbox 20 first. Yes. Uh, at least Rob Thomas uh, guided Santana to his biggest hit ever. Uh, so at least he's left a, a lasting mark, because that's actually not a bad song, uh, uh, primarily because well, Carlos Santana's playing guitar on it, <laughs> you know, so you can't go yeah. too wrong there. But anyway, Rob Thomas is the uh, the really, really good looking guy who could make the perfect grunge faces. I mean, this this guy could make the uh, I you can't see us and I'd love to make the face. But think of that that orgasmic, angry pain look with the wide eyes and the, the teeth hanging out, making sure that the few chest hairs are peeking into the camera. And that's, <laughs> and that, that is what, what Rob Thomas was the best in the world at. Now, now let's get to the, the one that really, really bothers me. Uh, which he, he, he's, he's Scott Stapp and he's here to fight. Yes, 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 he is. Uh, that, that, and believe it or not, folks, that's an actual real quote. And I, I guess I'll hand it over to Arturo after this to tell that story because he tells it so well. Uh, but, okay, so uh, Creed, uh, named after, you know, Jesus is Lord uh, and the original Creeds uh, that, that go back uh, then. Uh but at least uh, those uh, profess to be steeped in the actual spirit of, you know, the, uh, the Lord and, and Savior, uh, not bullshit, which basically <laughs> yeah. is what Creed was built on. Uh, I don't have to really go too much into the biography because you probably all know it. Uh, yeah, they're from Tallahassee, which, you know, is the... Uh, that's where Skinner was from too. And so, you know, again, great bands, uh, not much brain cells. Uh, Scott Stapp, of course, was the, uh, the self-righteous and uh, uh, self-professed Christ-like uh, lead singer who, uh, let's just put it this way, he, he had the stigmata posed down like a motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> I'll at least give him that. Uh, and you had guitarist and backup vocalist Mark Tremonti, who... This is another uh, factor of that era where you had really talented, smart guitarists stuck with horrendous lead man, uh, lead front man in terrible bands. And then they have to kind of put, you know, their, their best uh, face on it. So uh, here we go. Uh, they were ostensibly a Christian rock band. Uh, they were never marketed like that, with the except, except when they got big. And so they were kind of the, oh, yeah, by the way, we're indicative of this Christian wave. Uh, but honestly, look, you know, which, which one of these does not belong on this list? Jars of Clay, Switchfoot, Creed. No, Creed. <laughs> Creed now, they're, uh, look, uh, you know, they, they kind of wore that, you know, look, uh, 
Scott Stapp's father was a was a pastor, you know, Pentecostal. I mean, they they come from out of that tradition, and so I mean, really, it comes from the rebellion uh, of, of that. Um, and they formed this band, and you know, ostensibly, I guess, if you really uh, analyze this band, you can find some of the Christianity in it. But they're so goddamn offensive, and I said that on purpose. It's just you listen to them and they're clearly like, uh, as I said at the beginning of this, all of the drama and angst in the sound without any of the depth or any of a, of a clue. Uh, the song, my own prison comes on and it's that low hanging bass, you know, that a lot of songs from that era uh, had. And then it just never really goes from there. Now, uh, I think Scott Stapp finishes in second to uh, Seven Mary Three Dude for growling uh, in this <laughs> in this thing. So you know, cre- you know, he had a very distinctive growl. I'll give him that. Uh, yes, it did make me want to ship my pants, but uh, it's yeah. I I mean, I'm I'm so bent out of shape, I can barely talk about this motherfucker. Um, so you know, they they come in there and. Look, they confused righteousness for self-righteousness, and they couldn't even get self-righteousness right. I mean, look, Vitalogy by Pearl Jam is arguably a very uh, self-righteous record, but it's really compellingly done. Uh, and it's basically about, you know, trappings of fame, but at least it's smart enough to get uh, imagery from from Indians and, uh, and old clothings and, and, you know, vinyl records and stuff like that. And... Meanwhile, uh, my own prison is, uh, you know, you get uh, court is in session, a verdict is in, no appeal on the docket today, just my own sin. The walls cold and pale, the cage made of steel, screams fill the room alone, I drop and kneel. Uh, and, you know, just all, all of this other stuff. And, you know, you get shackled by the sentence, here is no penance. Blah, 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 blah. I hear a thunder in the distance, see a vision of a cross, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, okay, uh, it's, you're, you're equating, you're equating yourself to uh, being in front of Pontius Pilate. Meanwhile, you're just a drunken uh, drug addict from Florida uh, with a, with a shit eating grin who got caught on tape. Uh, getting boned at the same time that Kid Rock was in a fucking trailer uh, on a concert <laughs> ground. And so yep. the, the epitome of phony baloney bullshit, the phony baloney, and the epitome of uh, eighth grade uh, poetry, if that's what you want to call uh, this slop. And of course, uh, their, uh, their most enduring uh, accomplishment is from their next record with Arms Wide Open, uh, which you know, obviously, you know, the famous video, hey, his arms are wide open on the cliff. Uh, I mean, hell, I mean, what was it for about two years, Arthur, you and I would just like make that pose and we both knew yeah. what the hell we were talking about, you know, <laughs> and so, and look, you know, and, and so, so what's there? So basically, yeah, okay, fine. You know, you've, you've made it to heaven. Uh, you know, you've embraced me under the sunlight, you know, and that, you know, and basically professing to be uh, the voice of God, you know, with arms wide open, I'll show you everything. Uh, oh, to be fair, that song actually I read about it somewhere. It's it's about him, about his son. 
about having uh, a, a boy, his newborn son, for the first time. Okay, but it still sucks, you know. Yeah, it still sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 about it. But if you look at, you know, okay, fine, you know, and you know, I give myself up to you, kind of thing. But like I said, it's the you know, with arms wide open, I'll show you everything. And if you don't know that, this guy is actually taking on the voice of God. Um, <laughs> and you know, given what happened immediately after this, where you know he gets in conflict with the band, his addictions get out of control. He becomes a raging megalomaniacal asshole. Uh, They fire him and uh, Tremonti goes on and forms much better bands uh, after this, uh, including Altered State, which again, you know, I mean, say what you want. They're better than Creed um, and showed that Tremonti actually did have uh, more to offer. But I look back at it, they were huge uh, when, when the records were released, that second record in uh, 99 or 2000 uh, came along, uh, Human Clay. Yeah. So they went from my own prison, which, you know, okay, so I'm Paul or I'm Jesus to Human Clay. Okay. What are you, Isaiah, motherfucker? Uh, it's just uh, Human Clay comes on and it like debuts uh, at number one and like, you know, sales of 300,000 plus. And it just stayed up there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And to show you the uh, awfulness of the uh, National Academy for the Recording Arts and Sciences, with Arms Wide Open, won a fucking Grammy for Best Rock Song in 2001. Yeah, and um, two two little uh, side notes about Stapp. Uh, the mid noughties was really bad for him. That was the height of his drug and alcohol addiction. The whole thing with Three Eleven, basically, what it was this: it was Thanksgiving night, '05. They were in a both uh, both were in a hotel in Baltimore. Um, I think s- drunk Stapp thought he overheard the mem- the band members saying talking shit about him. Three Eleven were in the hotel restaurant. Stapp returned to the hotel restaurant, uttered the immortal words, I'm Scott Stapp, and I'm here to fight. <laughs> the, members of, the members of 311 indulged. They beat the crap out of him. Hotel security had to break up the fight, removed Stapp from the hotel, and yeah, and then it got on MTV. <laughs> yeah. You know, so... Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's there's a great uh, rock and roll true stories is a YouTube uh, mini documentary series, and if you go on YouTube and look it up, they have they have a little segment on this story as well. Yeah, uh, which will never not be funny uh, to yeah. me. And hey, you know, look, you know, three eleven. Uh, say what you want about you know that how kind of ridiculous uh, and stoned they were. At least they had a, one. They had a couple of hits, and two. They were smart enough to fuck with Scott Stapp. And so <laughs> that makes me want to hang out with those guys and maybe smoke a doobie, uh, at least in my <laughs> mind. I don't do that anymore. But if I was to smoke a doobie, it would be with Nick from 311. Anyway. Yeah. And now this leads us to our number one shitty worst, the absolute fucking worst of the shitty, fake, phony grunge bands. If Creed are officially, at least according to the readers of Rolling Stone, the worst band of the 1990s, then I'm very confident that a similar poll would easily place Nickelback 
as the worst band of the 2000s. Well, not only that, but they'd be the worst band of the 2010s, too. So, yeah, yeah so that that is quite an accomplishment. Uh, it is. Proceed, sir. Nickelback. Nickelback mm-hmm. at number one. One of the most unfathomable stories and developments in rock history is the enduring commercial popularity of this truly horrible, abominable band. And not just not just in the U.S. Unlike a lot of the bands on this list, Nickelback are quite big internationally. Yep, they are. Think about it. Lunk-headed lyrics that cross over into crass misogyny. Quote, kicking your ass would be a pleasure. End quote. I like the pants around your feet. End quote. Yeah, those are actual Nickelback lyrics. Clumsy and cliche chord progressions. An overall sound that takes the alternative rock template established by Pearl Jam and Nirvana and shits all over it with obnoxiously macho testosterone and anti-female bile. If Kurt Cobain were brought back from the dead and were forced to survey the mainstream rock radio landscape from the mid-1990s onward... He would grab a gun and shoot himself all over again. <laughs> and Nickelback would be the band that pushes him over the edge to do it. Wow, worse than heroin, right. huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> worse than Courtney Love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, oh, Chad, Chad, Chad. We, lo- we love you, but we hate you. <laughs> this sad story starts in Hannah, Alberta, Canada in the early 1990s when, as you said, Chad, Singer-guitarist Chad Kroger formed a covers band called, appropriately enough, Village Idiot. (laughs) They changed their name to Nickelback in 1995, an allusion to Chad's drummer brother, Mike, who at the time worked at Starbucks and would give a nickel in change to customers. Here's your your Nickelback. Get it? But 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 also uh, Kroger uh, in his his former career was as drug dealer. Yeah. So that's another nickel reference. Bag, nickel, ba- nickel bag of weed. You know. That's that's the other one. So anyway. so, so, so those are the two stories. We don't know which one. Anyway, one of those is how they got their name. I will give Nickelback credit for this. From 1996 to 2000, that band worked their asses off. They could not find a label who was interested in them. Understandably so. They sucked. So they self-released their first two albums, Curb in 1996 and The State in 98. They followed these releases with constant continual touring in every nook and cranny throughout Canada. They got their big break when an A&R representative from Roadrunner Records, a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, caught a Nickelback show in Vancouver in 1999. Roadrunner signed them and re-released their second album, The State, in 2000, generating a modern rock radio hit with the tuneless leader of men. The next year, however, the band ex-fucking-exploded with the album Silver Side Up and the single How You Remind Me being a number one smash pop hit in several countries. And, and may actually be the biggest rock hit of all time, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. No shit. Soon enough, Nickelback's brand of bastardized grunge and dumbed down right wing macho rock for white trash <laughs> became Canada's biggest export until Justin Bieber came along. 
Thanks, Canada. <laughs> uh, if you go solely by chart placements and radio airplay, really, Nickelback was the biggest band of the noughties. Uh 2003 saw them have another worldwide top 10 hit with Someday. Their 2005 album, All the Right Reasons, became their biggest selling album with three songs, Photograph, Far Away, and Rockstar, all hitting the Billboard Top 10 pop chart. They've released an album every three years since, each of them hitting the top 10 in multiple countries. You will not find a single music journalist worth their college degree who will say something positive about Nickelback. Nobody I know who has any decent taste in music likes them. So what the fuck is it about this band that generates such populist loyalty? (laughs) Well, Chris, I'll tell you what I did. I decided to take a deep dive into Nickelback's discography by doing a very soju drunken YouTube surf. By the way, for you listeners out there, soju is South Korea's uh, big time hardcore liquor. It's their whiskey. But it's only 20% proof as opposed to the average whiskey, 40% proof. But it can still kick your ass. Yes, it can. And I did a very, I did a very drunken YouTube surf of all of Nickelback's videos and singles in chronological order. I had to do this drunk. Being drunk was the only fucking way I could do this. And my God, was this an exercise in masochism. I could not finish a single song. Hmm? Every song I had to end at the two-minute mark. I really did. However, I did come away with something. And I think I know why Nickelback's popularity endures. I think. All those reasons I and many others have given regarding the overall awfulness of Nickelback is, I think, precisely why there is such a thing as Nickelback fans. Nickelback is essentially the soundtrack for insecure guys who think indie and alternative rock are too highbrow, even if Nickelback's music is basically a terrible imitation of alternative rock. It's the soundtrack for undereducated white trash who are defiant in keeping rock and roll sexist and dumb. Yep. It's the only logical conclusion I can come up with in regard to a band whose lyrics 90% of the time amount to girls do me wrong and they suck. Yeah. That's every Nickelback song. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much. And so, uh, yeah, the, uh, they are the kings of the incel world, um, even if they don't mean it. They're also, uh, look, I mean, when I think of Nickelback, I think of incels. I think of mass shooters. Uh, I think of those, uh, those, those beefy uh, guys with spiked hair and bad teeth at the bar that want to sing at the top of their lungs when they're, when they're drunk and clearly headed for rehab in, in 10 years. Um, and most, all, most of all, I just think of white men. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of white men. What I'd like to do now is actually, I want to finish this uh, little, little, this little um, review of the terrible bands that gave grunge a bad name with a quote from none other, none other than Eddie Vedder himself. This is from the book Grunge is Dead, the Greg, uh, the Greg Prado book. Okay, so I'm going to quote Vetter. This is what Vetter himself said. 
It took me a while to figure out how to really sing, or at least not push it. I really was a horse being led out of the gate. I was pent up. That first record, it's really throaty. <laughs> it didn't mean to be, but it became a vocal style that became co-opted by certain bands that I feel made really shitty music. And they weren't making those records until we, I'm meaning Pearl Jam, <laughs> were on were on like our third record or even fourth. And what's funny, these bands, these copycat bands, the bridge would sound like Lane, the verse would sound like me, and the chorus would sound like Kurt. <laughs> or or they would look like me and sound like Kurt. Or they would look like Kurt and sound like me. All this weird amalgamation stuff. However, if you listen to surf music, everybody sounded like the Beach Boys. If you get the Rhino Kawabunga box set, there are all these bands you've never heard of. It all sounded like the Beach Boys with harmonies, guitars, and wipeout drum sounds. But here's the thing. It was all kind of good. For me, what was weird, I was just like, God, I would never listen to this grunge copycat music. This is not good. And it felt like they were co-opting the angst from whatever I had been through. I don't know anything about these people, but I didn't feel like they had lived through it. It wasn't like they were co-opting what we were doing. It was like the first record, <laughs> referring to 10. They were all ripping off 10. Or those two songs. Okay, so now the final segment of this episode, of every episode really, The Vault. And since uh, we just spent a long time uh, really indulging in memories of the worst phony, shitty, fake grunge bands, our two Vault recommendations, mine and Chris's, will be the OGs of grunge, or two of the OGs of grunge, as if we're trying to cleanse ourselves, cleanse our palates of this terrible music that we've been talking about. We're going to talk about good grunge music now. Thank goodness and hallelujah, yeah. baby. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to start with me. And my vault recommendation is none other than one of the foundational Seattle bands, the Melvins. And their major label debut, Houdini, from 1993. Now, the Melvins, like I said earlier, are on that short list of Seattle bands, or Seattle area that originated what became known as the grunge sound. What the Melvins basically did was take the energy of hardcore punk and infused it with a heavy dose of slowed down, down-tuned Black Sabbath-style metal. The result was a new kind of sludge metal that proved extremely influential for many years. A lot will be discussed regarding the Melvins in our upcoming fourth golden age of rock series. Uh, that, that, that's a bit of a mini promo. Yes. But 
But for now, let's focus on the band's bid for mainstream stardom. Yes. Hot on the heels of the grunge and alternative rock explosion of the early 1990s. Like I said, their 1993 album, Houdini. After Nirvana hit big, Kurt Cobain was very public in the media about his favorite bands, mostly of the underground variety, and which ones he thought should be heard by larger audiences. Well, the Melvins were clearly one of the bands that benefited from that as they were signed to Atlantic Records in 1992. To take it a step further, Cobain agreed to produce what would be the Melvins' major label debut. Unfortunately for the band, and according to singer-guitarist Buzz Osborne in many interviews given throughout the years, Cobain was in no shape to produce any band due to him being totally strung out on heroin. Allegedly, Cobain was nodding out and slept through most of the sessions. So, despite the album credits listing Cobain, Garth Richardson, and the Melvins themselves as producers, Osborne has asserted throughout the years that the album was basically a self-produced affair. Wrong credits even extended to the personnel on the album. Lori Black, otherwise known as Lorax, is listed as the bassist, even though Osborne has repeatedly stressed that he played all the bass parts in addition to the guitar parts. So, what exactly was produced from these seemingly distraught recording sessions? What we got was one of the most relentlessly heavy, dynamic, uncompromising metal albums ever released on a major label, particularly the first half of the album, which, if we're going by the old vinyl standards of side A and side B, is one of the greatest side A's in rock history. Yeah, it's pretty good. You start with the chest-caving heaviness of the lead track and the lead single, Hooch, uh, which is a song about a, a relapsing alcoholic. Yes, it is. Next, next you get Night Goat, which has one of the gnarliest doom metal riffs ever invented. Next up is Lizzie, which takes the slow to fast and heavy dynamics pioneered by the Pixies and perfected by Nirvana to the next step of punishing heaviosity. Next is their cover of Kisses Going Blind, a wholesome tale of a 90-year-old man having an affair with a teenage girl. This belongs on any all-time list of cover versions actually being better than the original. Yep. Next, you get Honey Bucket, which packs what would be the world-beating thrash metal riffs for three songs into one three-minute orgy of thrash perfection. Finally, you get the inevitable patented for the Melvins, slow down sludge of hag, which is heavier than a rhinoceros's ass. Even though Osborne and drummer Dale Crover, the two guys who essentially are the Melvins, have long panned and downplayed the album, it has gone down in history as one of the band's greatest and most influential. Pitchfork named Hooch one of the 100 greatest songs of the 1990s, regardless of genre. Multiple metal publications from Treblezine to Loudwire to Noise Creep have consistently ranked the album among the best metal and grunge albums of all time. 
In 2005, the UK's All Tomorrow's Parties Festival invited the band to perform the album in its entirety as part of its Don't Look Back series. In 2007, the the Melvins performed the entire album at the Primavera Sound Festival. Oh, yeah. It was also the band's biggest selling album by far, selling a quote-unquote whopping 100,000 copies. Hey, six figures, baby. As Osborne said himself, quote, Houdini was the first album we did for Atlantic Records and certainly was our biggest selling record, although not so much that I could put a down payment on a new Rolls Royce or something. Screaming Trees, uh, absolute masterpiece, Dust. From, their last album, too. And their last album from 1996. And here's what I have to say about that. Now, when I hear Halo of Ashes, All I Know, and Dying Days, the only thing I can think is, how the hell was Screaming Trees not huge? They may be the great lost band of that era. A band that got some short-term love for their association with what I call the Big Five, but somehow wound up as an obscurity historically and in the dustbin. Uh, there really should have been a big six. Now, mind you, Mudhoney would serve as the godfather shaman uh, in this universe. Uh, so the, it should be Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, and Screaming Trees. Now, Screaming Trees, they captured the balls and the heavy wallop of Black Sabbath while infusing it with a woozy psychedelia, artful guitar touches, and lovely melodies and harmonies and uh, accoutrement uh, such as uh, mellotrons and, and, other, uh, and other instrumentation. This band had incredible range and an incredible depth of feeling that not many bands could touch. A lot of this can be tr- attributed not only to the songwriting and uh, guitar playing chops, uh, of and the underground rock vocabulary of founding members, the Connor Brothers, but also to the brilliance of singer Mark Lanigan, who went on to produce a compelling body of work as a solo artist and occasional uh, collaborator with Queens of the Stone Age. Screaming Trees had been around for a decade uh, before the release of Dust, uh, which is, as I've said, is their magnus opus. Now, they released four albums on the seminal label SST, uh, between 1987 and 1990 that really belong in that uh, pre-Seattle breakout canon along with uh, early Soundgarden records and Melvin records. And Green River. And Green River and Malfunction and uh, you know those, those types of bands. Uh, so the inclusion of the beautiful bang and crash of Nearly Lost You on the soundtrack to the movie uh, Singles gave Screaming Trees their opportunity to enter the main stage along with those other big five uh, bands. And I believe they did it in incredible fashion with 1996's Dust. The album is one compelling, instantly accessible, richly textured song after another. It mixes clear Asian influences within the rhythms and instrumental choices like Indian percussion with crashing riffs, white-hot twisting melting guitar solos, and an aura of mystery generated by Mellotrons and Lanigan's wholly distinctive expressive baritone. Beyond the swinging driving All I Know and the deep, dark, hypnotic uh, dying days, 
Other highlights include the gorgeous ballad Traveler, which sounds like it may legitimately be floating on a cloud, and album closer Gospel Plow, which perfectly lives up to the song's name. The song starts as a spooky Indian-inspired dirge and grows into the most orthodox but most wonderful uh, grunge jam-out imaginable. Sadly, Dust was met with widespread indifference by the listening and the buying public, which befuddles me to this day. The album, despite universal critical plaudits, was such a commercial dud that the band couldn't find a major label taker for its planned next record. Uh, For real, and they could barely get shows. The internal strife that that failure caused, plus growing personal problems, including uh, Lanigan's grand uh, grand land staley scale addictions, caused the band to split up in 2000. Lanigan survived somehow. So too does the catalog of Screaming Trees, including Dust, in my opinion, an absolute masterpiece. Thank goodness. And with that, we come to the end of another voyage of their Camarades Rock Report. We are now 14 episodes into this journey, and we are so grateful uh, that you have uh, jumped along uh, this ride. Uh, we want to hear from you. Uh, this was a really uh, touchpoint record uh, out of episode for us and uh really was uh, was a a passion play here as much as the prince versus michael stuff that we're going to be doing uh so uh hit us up curmudgeonrock at gmail.com and uh visit us on twitter uh, at curmudgeon pod and just tell us uh your thoughts on uh the shitty dregs of nirvana so (laughs) with that uh i guess we, we sign off the curmudgeon rock report will keep on rocking if you do catch us where you catch all the podcasts we know you love rock and roll as much as we do support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeon rock find show notes and more on our medium site join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge stay rude stay crude stay sophisticated thank you for listening